0: Thank you, Jeanette, for that prayer. And once again, uh, welcome to our service. Uh, Today we begin week two in our series in Jeremiah, entitled Courage to Stand. And the title of today's message is God Files for Divorce. So years ago, when both uh, Billy Graham and Ruth Graham were living, uh, a reporter one time asked Ruth, if she had ever considered divorcing Billy Graham. She said, no, 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 I've never considered divorcing Billy. Murder? Several times, many times, but I've never considered divorce. I know divorce is a very difficult subject for all of us to hear, to talk about. In fact, if we are similar to the rest of the world, about a half of our church has gone through this very painful experience divorce. And even if you haven't been divorced, uh, you've been affected by the pain and the scars of someone that you love who's gone through that. I just wanted to let you all know today as we go through this message that uh, it's never our intention or certainly God's intention to tear you down, but only to build you up. And uh, God has a promise at the end of this message, a promise of redemption. So even if this is somewhat painful at the beginning, hang in there and uh, God will give you something exactly what you need at the close of this message. So if you'll just join me now for a brief prayer, if you'll extend your hands as a sign of receptivity to the word. And Father, um, as Jeanette prayed, Lord, we just want to open our hearts uh, to you right now. We open our hands as a symbol of everything that we have and are, being attentive to your spirit right now. Father, I pray that you would bless these words in Jeremiah. And especially at the end of the message, Lord, when we recognize your great love and your great redemption, which is available to all of us, every one of us who has failed in our lives in different ways, to all of us. So, Father, thank you for this time we have in your word, and may you bless it now. And may we be receptive, and may we be transformed by the authority of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first verse I will share with you is from the third chapter of Jeremiah verse 1 If a man divorces his wife and leaves and she leaves him and marries another man should he return to her again would not the land be completely defiled but you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers would you now return to me declares the Lord God hates divorce the bible makes that clear and if that's the case then then why is God actually considering the D word? What outrageous, egregious sins must the bride commit for God himself to file for divorce? We hear a lot today in divorce courts about reasonable grounds for divorce. I'm not sure that's really a thing. (laughs) But how reasonable are those reasons? I looked at uh, some, on Google, I looked at some Hollywood divorces and why some of those couples get divorced. I won't mention their names, but here's some of the reasons. Fraud. Irreconcilable differences. We fell out of love. We've grown apart. It was fun while it lasted. No longer sexually compatible. Really? <laughs> Biology tells you that you're sexually compatible with half of the people on the planet. So, I mean, why is that a deal? We grew tired of each other. Mutual boredom. Her cooking stinks. His feet smell. I mean, there's no end to the list of whys. So, we have to ask this question Did the feet of the bride of Christ smell? Did God grow tired of Judah? Certainly none of these reasons would be enough for, God, for the God of the eternal covenant to end his marriage to his own people. God files for divorce. Really? Would he? Could he? Well, yes, he could. And it seems like he would. Jeremiah 2.9 Therefore I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. Let's face it, with the nation of Israel, and specifically with Judah, the honeymoon is over. God is taking his people Israel to divorce court. Jeremiah, too, is like his uh, legal testimony in front of a job, judge. What happened? How far have they come from those early days of this passionate love relationship with their heavenly father, with Yahweh? The honeymoon is over. What happened? Well, let's take a look at the honeymoon. God remembers what the honeymoon was like. He pages through the photos in his wedding album. There is an ache in his heart as he does. He remembers how his bride, Israel, adored him when they were first wed. Jeremiah 2.2, I remember, he testifies, the devotion of your youth. How as a bride, you loved me. God says, I remember that. I remember those early days when we adored each other. God is on the witness stand in the agony of love. The kind of agony Sheldon Van Auken describes in his book, A Severe Mercy. I don't know if you've read that book. It's a powerful book. Uh, Sheldon Van Auken was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. This is what he writes in A Severe Mercy. To hold her in my arms against the twilight and be her comrade forever. This was all I wanted so long as my life should last. And this, I told myself with a kind of wonder, this was what love was. The consecration. This curious uplifting. This sudden, inexplicable joy. And this intolerable pain. Once Israel loved God like a newlywed. I remember so clearly uh, my wedding day. Um, in fact, um, what, when is your, Robin, when is your anniversary? Uh, tomorrow, right? 46 years, Robin has in the books, tomorrow. With sure. yeah. <laughs> yeah, with her first husband, her only husband, that's right. And Sherry and I will be married 50 years coming this August 1st. But I remember our wedding day. I was excited and scared, but I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I wanted to be with Sherry for the rest of my life. Now the word devotion in Jeremiah 2.2 is the Hebrew word chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. And what it means is this, no unbroken promises, unshakable loyalty, unceasing devotion, unfailing loving loving kindness. More than a legal contract, it was a covenant, a steadfast love commitment of fidelity and adoration. And that's what God wants from you and me. He had that relationship with the nation of Israel and he desires that relationship with every person on this planet. Every one of us can have that kind of Beautiful, devotional, adorational relationship with our Heavenly Father. Somehow Christians get the idea that religion is about obedience to God's law. But God never intended our relationship with Him to be mere obedience of the will. God wants our hearts as well as our wills. He wants a redemption as a romance. He wants this dance of love with each and every one of us. Now... There's an amazing book in the Old Testament called the Song of Solomon. Now, by the way, uh, I want you to know that uh, you need to read your Bibles, okay? There's some exciting... If you read romance novels, the Song of Solomon has that beat a hundred times over, okay? So you need to read your Bibles, it's very good. And anyway, this book of the Song of Solomon, uh, it describes this passionate love relationship with Solomon and his bride. But really, it's a picture of God's relationship with Israel. This is what it says in Song of Solomon 8, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Now, I'm not going to put it on the screen because it's too hot for the screen, okay? Here you go. (laughs) Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. I mean, this passion, this unbridled desire. That's why in marriage, what matters is not the dancing afterwards. Or the preparation before. In marriage, what really matters is the vow. When you are saying, I am giving you everything I am, and I'm giving you everything I am forever. The vow matters. And, and here's a, a word, and, and I hope you'll understand this, and I want to be sensitive around this subject, but the reason that lovemaking is designed for marriage is because it's giving away part of your soul. Every single time. That's why it's to be dev- devoted to a marriage relationship, to a, a, a commitment to a relationship. Every time you make love, you renew your wedding vows to each other. And nothing or no one will take your place. It's a covenant relationship of love, devotion, and passion. The intimacy of love between God and us really matters. God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now this intimate love relationship with Israel was absolutely real and it was based on three things in uh, chapter 2. God had passion for his bride. Verse 2, uh, excuse me, chapter 2 verse 3. Israel was holy to the Lord, set apart for the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. God's best and most valuable valuable possession was Israel. God's best and most valuable possession is you. You are the apple of his eye. There's a picture of you on God's refrigerator in heaven. You matter that much. Not only did God have passion for his bride, God protected his bride. He would not allow anyone else to taste this fruit. All who, uh, chapter 2, verse 3 again, all who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them. God says, I will protect you. I will protect my bride. Now, there's a beautiful picture of this in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, chapter 14. Now, Pharaoh had finally relented and said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll let the Israelites go. So a million Israelites started moving towards the Red Sea. This is going to be a barrier because there's no way that they could cross the Red Sea. But as they moved towards that, the people were afraid. And they were, they were very, very disturbed by the fact that they could hear in the distance Pharaoh's chariots chasing them down. He changed his mind once again and now he's coming after to attack the Israelites. Is God going to protect his people? Listen to what it says in Exodus 14, 13. Stand firm, And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians, listen to this, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. And then Moses raised his rod, right? And the seas parted. And the Israelites came through safely. God promises to protect you. God promises to protect us even through this coronavirus. God promises to protect us through all of these times of disaster and trial. All who devoured her, excuse me, all who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them. God protected his bride. The third thing it says is that God provided for his bride. Verse two seven, chapter Verse 7, I brought you into a fertile land. God gave Israel a beautiful home. Plenty of food in the pantry, milk and honey, fine bone china on the table. It was phenomenal. That was the honeymoon, and it was sweet. But it didn't last. Here comes the complaint, the grounds for divorce. Time to wake up and smell the burnt toast. Have any of you ever experienced perpetual honeymoon? No. We've all experienced a loss of passion, a subtle seepage of serendipity, you might say, a three-year, seven-year, ten-year, 25-year itch. I don't believe there's a 50-year itch. I think by then we're all itched out, so I think (laughs) that's going to work. But we lose that butterfly effect, right? That tingling desire, that... That we fall into a rut, a routine, and we forget our first love. This is what Jesus warned, of, warned us of in Revelation chapter 3. Don't forget your first love. Go back to him. That's what God wanted for the nation of Israel. Come back to me. That's what God wants for you and me. Come back to me if you've drifted away. Have you ever felt like that? In Jeremiah 2, the bride Israel decides the honeymoon is over. You ask, how could this happen? The wedding was so beautiful. The honeymoon was so passionate. The bride so devoted. The husband so faithful. Where did it all go wrong? So God steps up to the witness stand in divorce court and asks this question in chapter 2, verse 5 What fault did your fathers find in me that they stayed so far from me? God says, What did I do wrong? Where did I let you down? Where did I not show you love and compassion and mercy? What did I do wrong? God did not leave His people. They dumped Him. When Sherry and I were first uh, going together, um, I sometimes drove my dad's '59 Chevy. Uh, Chevy, uh, it was a great car, and a big, powerful engine. And uh, and what I liked about it is that it had a big. You know, it was bigger than my little '67 Volkswagen, right? And so we go on a date, maybe go to a drive-in movie, and they had this bench seats. Now, those of you who are younger, you don't know what a bench seat is. Ask your, ask your parents. Okay, so I had this bench seat, and, I'd, and Sherry would always see, she's very physical. She'd always snuggle right up next to me and real close to me, and I'm driving like this or driving like It was really awesome and everything. Well, this one time we had an argument before we left for our date, you know, uh, don't try this at home. And, uh, and so, so when we got in the car, she went all the way over to the right side of the car and sat over there right against the window, as close as you get to the window. And we're driving along, and she said, Honey, I feel like we're drifting apart. <laughs> I said, I didn't move anywhere. <laughs> I'm still here. You're the one that's over there. And so, of course, we talked it out. But it, that's the way God feels. You know, we say, Oh, God, where are you? I can't feel you. God says, I'm still here. I haven't gone anywhere. You're the one that's walked away from me. The honeymoon is over. And God says, listen, I don't know what I did, but somehow things went wrong. Israel dumped God. In fact, if you ever feel far away from God, you know who dumped who. Now, why would anyone leave God? It makes no sense whatsoever. Why would a bride leave a perfect husband? Why, when God was faithful, attentive, and engaged... Would Israel dump him? God is the one who's been wronged. He is the plaintiff. And this is his accusation in chapter 2, verse 5. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Oh, that is condemning. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. That can be said of the Israelites. It can certainly be said of us. This is God's legitimate grounds for divorce. Quite simply, it's adultery. God's people have been having affairs with worthless idols. The word worthless in Hebrew, the word is hibel, H-E-B-E-L. It means a mist or a vapor. It's something that's empty. I mean, you can touch these worthless idols, but then they're gone. They have no substance. There's nothing to them. When uh, Sherry and I twice have been to Alaska on cruises and we do some tours and I'm always fascinated by these totem poles. Now, totem poles aren't strictly religious, but some Native Americans see them as religious symbols. And, and it's about the spiritual side of animals and their ancestors and all of that. But what, what amazes me is in these totem poles, um, one time we were there maybe five, six years ago, and, uh, and they were all worn out. I mean rain and snow and everything and they were all kind of you know the paint was gone and they didn't look very good and 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 sometimes we forget that false idols false gods have to be painted periodically they have to be fixed up they have to be repaired these people Israel followed after idols that appear beautiful but there's no substance it's a mist It's a vapor. I I don't want to follow a God that I have to paint and repair. So marriage begins to to die because of neglect. They no longer say, the text says, where is the Lord? They stop looking for their bridegroom. They stop looking for the one who has loved them. Where is the Lord? They say that no more. They no longer recount the acts of God, what God did in the desert for 40 years, how God delivered them over and over and over again from the darkness, from the hunger. They stopped talking about God. They stopped looking at the photo albums. They focus on only what they can see right in the moment. We do that now with this virus. We only see what's going on in the moment instead of seeing what God is doing globally. What God wants to do globally, they stopped looking at God. And they were looking at other gods that had no substance. They were a vapor, a mist. Israel stopped loving, remembering, being in relationship. They followed worthless idols. That was grounds for divorce. So here's the evidence. Jeremiah 2 does not describe a situation of irreconcilable differences. This is not a no-fault divorce. God has legitimate grounds for terminating the marriage. God says, they traded me for someone else. I was this perfect God, a perfect lover, a perfect husband, and they traded me in for false gods? It breaks my heart, the Lord says. So the rest of the chapter, chapter 2 and 3, are evidence of infidelity of God's people. So with the logic of a lawyer and the longing of a lover, God proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that his people have forsaken their first love. Let's take a look at some of the evidence. Exhibit A, chapter 2, verse 11. Has a nation ever changed gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless Idols. What a ridiculous notion. Has a nation ever changed gods? Of course not. Travel the world from east to west, no nation ever changed their gods. Shoes, maybe, or hairstyles, but not gods. We don't do that. Even pagans are loyal to their gods. I mean, they cart them around wherever they go. Did the Canaanites ever abandon Baal or Asherah? No. Do the Babylonians forsake Bel or Merodach? No, it's ridiculous. The Israelites are confused, so confused. They are what I would call cross-worshipping. It's like wife swapping. It's like relationship swapping. Away, cross-worshipping, away from the living God for wood or iron. Now, lest we be too hard on the Israelites. We do that today. I know a lot of Christ followers who are, and, and believe me, I'm not pointing at any fingers because I've experienced this, are what I would call practical atheists. Um, they really don't think much about God or pay any attention to God until Sunday morning. And then they throw God a few bucks and uh, 75 minutes, and then they're off and running again. We have so many gods, mist, vapor, so many gods that we have used to somehow replace the one true God. We do that same thing, we straddle the fence, we cross-worship, we have a divided heart. In Revelation chapter 3 verses 15 and 16, we read these words, Jesus is talking to the church at Laodicea, one of the churches that were around uh, on the Mediterranean rim in Jesus' day. Here's what he said, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. That's pretty harsh words. Revelation three fifteen and 16. Jesus said, make up your mind. Who's your God? Who are you following? Have you come to believe that there is someone or something else that will satisfy the needs of your soul? Jesus says, only I can do that. Only I can do that. When we leave God for worthless idols, It's no small thing. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror. Chapter 2, verse 12. So that's exhibit A. You've literally switched gods. You have cross-worshipped. Exhibit B. What is it like when God's people leave their husband? It's like leaving a spring of living water. Chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, false gods, right? The spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, imagine living in the desert. Oh, wait a second, we don't have to imagine that, do we? Yeah, we do live in the desert. Okay. Now, a cistern was an underground reservoir of water. And if there were cracks in the cistern or it was broken, guess what? Mud would seep into the cistern. So you dip down for water and you have this big glob of mud. Do you think it would be appropriate instead of the spring of living water, Jesus, to go out to one of our canals here in Arizona? Uh, Do you guys have like canals here in Tucson? Okay, we have them all over in Phoenix. And that's where carp live and garbage and everything else. What would it be like if you went over to one of those canals in Phoenix and you took a bucket and you dipped it and you started to drink that? That's what the Israelites did. They exchanged living water for water from a broken and a cracked cistern. Being fearful of being squashed by Assyria in the north and Egypt in the south and west. They substituted their political alliances. And anytime you have a political alliance and you think that somehow that's going to change the world, that's a broken cistern. Now a word to us today, we have to be very careful. In our world, everybody is broken around politics. We need to to keep our greatest and best uh, desire and passion for Jesus and not for politics because politics is what? It's the small kingdom. It's the kingdom of the world. So, that's what they were doing. They sought somehow, if they aligned themselves with Assyria or Babylon, that somehow then would be mighty again, and that would be the solution to their problems. A broken cistern. A broken cistern. Judah wanted a political solution. God said, you don't need a political solution. You need to come back to your husband. You need to come back to me. Broken cisterns. Exhibit C. When God's people leave their husband, it's like a beast breaking free from its yoke. Now, Sherry went to Thailand on a missionary deal years ago, and she brought back a picture of this water buffalo in Thailand. And um, when that bot- those buffaloes get free from their bondage, I mean, they just run wild. But listen to what it says in chapter 2, verse 20. Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. So here the Israelites have this relationship. Yes, they're servants to God, but it's a love relationship as well. We don't want want God to tell us what to do anymore. And they threw off their bonds and they say, oh, now I'm free. You know you're not free when you break off your bonds to God. It's just the opposite. You become in bondage to sin. Romans 6.16 says uh, uh, to... uh, don't you know that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? It's your choice. Who are you going to say, I want to serve you? Are you going to say that to God? Or are you going to say that to some worldly system or even worse, to yourself? You are in bondage to something. You have to decide who you are going to serve. Exhibit D, chapter 2, verse 20. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute, shacking up with gods that you hardly know. Baal worship included ritual prostitution. It included child uh, child infat- infanticide. I can't believe God says that you have given up on me. To claim one of these lovers that the world has to offer that are only a mist or a vapor? Every high hill and under every spreading tree you lay down as a prostitute. Exhibit E. Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain on your, of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. Now we wash our hands a lot these days, don't we? 20 seconds, warm water. 20 seconds seems like 20 minutes, but we do it anyway, right? Because we want our hands to be clean, and we don't want to spread a virus. What God is saying here is the virus of idolatry, the virus of adultery, that is something that you can't wash your hands of. That sticks to you. That stays with you. That changes you from the inside out. Sin is not a cosmetic problem. It stinks, and when it stinks on you, it's spread and it stinks on others. I mean, we know the statistics. Couples who have experienced adultery, less than one out of ten of those couples, their marriage survives. God says there's a better way, Israel, and there's a better way for you and I today. And then he goes on, I won't go into the other details, but another exhibit is a camel running aimlessly, looking for something to satisfy her. And another is a wild donkey in heat like an uncontrollable sexual urge in an animal that's addictive and overwhelming. And this satisfies? No, it does not. Worst of all, how painful it is to realize that God's beautiful quiet bride has quite simply forgotten him. In times of trouble, she forgot God. All the evidence is at hand what is the verdict? Is there enough evidence for a conviction? Are you kidding? This evidence sticks like taffy on a two-year-old, right? God wins. No defense. God gets the house, the chariot, the villa, and Assyria, a large alimony, and the dog. He gets it all. How about you? Have you forgotten your first love? Have you searched for water in broken cisterns? And worst of all, have you forgotten God? He just doesn't cross your mind anymore? The court would say guilty, but this is not the end. Thank God there is reconciliation. Chapter 3, verse 14. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am... Your husband. Wow. To me, that is a breathtaking statement. After all that he's laid out, after all that God has said, after all that Israel has done, after the many times that you have broken God's heart, the many times you have sinned against God and against other people, after all that has happened, here's what he says to you again. I am still your husband. I am still your husband. It is the grace of God to the ungracious. It's God's faithfulness to the unfaithful. Even when God's love is unrequited, he does not cease to love you. Although his marriage is violated, he does not break his covenant with Israel or with you or with me. If you have never entered this love relationship with God, he's calling your name this morning to enter that kind of a passionate love, lifelong, eternal relationship. And if you're already in that romance of redemption, here's the word from God. Return to your first love. It's never too late. Go back and look at the wedding album again return to your first love. Now here's the promise of God. It's found in chapter 31 of Jeremiah verses 3 and 4. 3 and 4. This is God's word for you today. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, "I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again, and you will be rebuilt." Oh, virgin Israel. This is so beautiful and so powerful. God says to Israel, he says to you and me, he said, I will build you up. I will restore you. It's like you will become on your wedding night a virgin again. You'll be brand new. Therefore, if any man or woman is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. God promises redemption for those who say, You are my God. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, I am so thankful that you are God of the second chance. Hmm. So thankful that your cleansing is so complete. Your forgiveness is so thorough that you restore Israel. To her wedding night a virgin pure and passionate and madly in love with you and and Father you restore us in that same way to that first love that we first had with you it's like we come to you with, as that precious bride against that is untethered and untainted by the world you say let's start over let's begin again you matter to me more than anything else in this world so Father I just pray right now that Everyone is listening to this message will simply bow their heads and just simply cry out to you, oh Lord, I want to return to my first love. I want to go back to that place when I first met you and it was so exciting and so real and so passionate. Lord, I desire that first love once again. And God promises that he will restore that. And if there are some of you who have never experienced that kind of a romance of redemption, his prayer is simply this. Open your heart to him. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need you. I need to have this relationship with God and I don't know how to gain it except to simply say, I believe in you. I trust in what you did for me on the cross to die for my sins. And I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I begin this dance of redemption. I begin this time of love relationship with a God who will never let me down. So Father, I pray for our whole congregation, for all those who are listening, that they will experience this beautiful, passionate, amazing love that you've provided for each and every one of us. Thank you, Father. And we pray these things in the precious and the holy name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.